This episode of Cardi Nerds is sponsored by Glass Health, a new digital notebook designed for all healthcare providers. With Glass Notebook, you can capture all of the schemas, scripts, and pearls that you encounter and leverage them to take better care of your patients. Their notebook is absolutely perfect for capturing and organizing tutorials, journal clubs, podcasts, photos, and lecture slides that have been building up chaotically on your phone and computer. Try Glass Notebook for yourself today by visiting glass.health to keep all of your medical knowledge in one place. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, everyone. It's Amit Goyal. Welcome back to a phenomenal case discussion. We are so excited to host, for the very first time, fellows from University of Alabama Cardiology Fellowship. So allow me to welcome onto the show, Drs. Usman Hasni and Will Borgen. Guys, welcome to CardioNerd. So excited that you're able to join us and really excited for the discussion ahead. But before we get started, would you introduce yourselves to the audience? Yeah, Amit, thanks for having us. We're so excited to be representing UAB. I'm Osman, everyone. I grew up in Michigan, made my way down for residency at, at UAB, and now I'm a first-year fellow over here. Hey, everybody. I'm Will Morgan. Super honored to be on the pod today. Appreciate the invitation, Amit. I'm from Jackson, Mississippi originally. Did my medical school training there at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and then made my way over to Birmingham or residency, and I'm also a first-year cardiology fellow with Usman this year. Amazing. Welcome again, guys. And the first thing I noticed when we hopped on the recording was Usman proudly having in the back of his room a big Michigan M, so we definitely know where your loyalties lie. Exactly. <laughs> but guys, this is my very first time in Birmingham, so show me around. Where are we going to hang out today? Yeah, so I think it depends on who you ask, but you'll probably find me running in the hills of Birmingham. We're probably scenically on Red Mountain, kind of enjoying the views and the beautiful weather. Always nice when it's December and it's 60, 65 degrees. Yeah, I'm just as likely to be found enjoying the hills. We call them mountains in Birmingham, but they're really, really foothills. I, I like the Vulcan Trail. The Vulcan is an old bronze statue that was used in the World Games, I think in maybe 1904, that sits on top of, of Red Mountain and sort of overlooks downtown, has a beautiful walking, running trail there. So a place that that I, my wife really enjoy to hang out. You know, whether you call them hills or mountains, it's not lost on me that it is December and you're talking about 60 degrees and going on hikes. And I'm here in Cleveland and it is cold and snowing. Picturesque, but cold and snowing nonetheless. So with that in mind, let's go on a trail and talk about cardiology. Let's get right to it. What do we have? Yeah, so we're in clinic and we have a 75-year-old woman who presented to the clinic for intermittent episodes of, as she describes it, left arm dropping and, and flopping. Will, you want to tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, I'll be happy to. So she says that the first time she noticed symptoms was about three months ago when her left arm became sort of, as she said, droopy and floppy, kind of weak. I mean, this spontaneously resolved within about 24 hours. A couple of weeks prior to us seeing her, the same sort of symptoms developed in her right lower extremity and again, resolved. And during this three-month time period, she's also had episodes of dizziness and what she describes as seeing spots. And these are the things that, that prompted her to come to clinic. She notably denies having any fevers, chills, nausea, vomiting. She's, she's 
pretty much felt in her usual state of health, no chest pain, no shortness of breath, and, and really no B symptoms. She denies any night sweats, weight loss, and I think she's feeling okay today in clinic actually, but just concerned about these symptoms she's been having. So just to say a little bit more about her and kind of give her background, she does have a history of a non-rheumatic severe MR that required robotic mitral valve repair about nine months prior. At the time, she also had a maze procedure and a left atrial appendage clip placed. She has a history of proxismal AFib, coronary artery disease, hypertension, and OSA. As far as her medications go, she was on amlodipine, atorvastatin, metoprolol, and pixaban. To add on her, her family history, she does have family history of coronary artery disease in her father who acquired cabbage. Her brother had a history of atrial fibrillation, and then her mother has a remote history of TB. As far as her social history goes, she currently lives in a city down south, a couple hours away from Birmingham, and denies any illicit drug use or alcohol use or recent tobacco use. So, Usman, when we're seeing this lady in clinic for the first time, you know, we're thinking about what could be the the differential diagnosis for her intermittent neurologic symptoms, and they seem to sort of come and, and go. So, our initial thoughts were, you know, maybe she's had some small strokes or even transient ischemic attacks. With her history of atrial fibrillation, you always worry about cardioembolic phenomena. However, she says she's been compliant with her apixaban. You also worry about, you know, more rare things. In her case, she doesn't have a known history of heart failure, but you worry about things like LV thrombus or LV non-compaction, throwing emboli, less likely, you know, a patent PFO and paradoxical emboli, which again, falls down the list with her being reportedly compliant with her apixaban. And then endocarditis, of course, can have cardioembolic phenomena. However, she denies any B symptoms felt in her usual state of health otherwise. And the other things that just sort of went through my mind vascular-wise would be carotid artery stenosis. And then neurologically, could this be something like multiple sclerosis that would cause symptoms to just sort of come and fade over time, although the time course seems a bit quick. Focal seizures, they could be resolving. And then migraine with aura, but although she denies any history of headache. Yeah, that's a really great breakdown, Will. And, you know, one of the things I really enjoyed about neurology was sort of localizing the lesion. You know, like where in space is the pathology and then thinking about what the differential is for that pathology and also what the timing timing is of symptom onset and the manifestations. But, you know, the first thing that I thought about with left arm at one point and right leg um, issues at another point was, could this be peripheral? You know, is it a peripheral neurologic manifestation like multineuritis, multiplex, you know, something along those lines? There are several causes of that. But I think the presence of ocular symptoms, if we were to map it on with the same sort of disease process, it does make me more concerned that this is probably a central neurologic issue. And then we think, okay, like, just like you outlined, like, what are the causes of central neurologic pathology that's causing different lesions that are separated both in space and in time, right? So is it embolic? Is it inflammatory, like multiple sclerosis, you know, epileptic? Is there, I think, really interesting place to start here. But, you know, I'm curious to see where things go in terms of how you ended up triaging this and thinking about what the next steps would be. Yeah, that's an excellent breakdown, Will. And I do want to take a second just to talk about severe MR because I think it's something that you really start to appreciate, maybe at least for me more so in, in fellowship than I was able to as a resident. You always have to think about MR whether it's primary or secondary. And primary MR, we're talking about true structural abnormalities in the leaflets themselves or within the subvalvular apparatus, things along the lines of ruptured cordae. Meanwhile, you have secondary MR, which is more a result of true LV dysfunction. And that ends up reducing the closing forces on the leaflets, which is what actually generates the regurgitation. And you see that a lot in people with heart failure, 
you see the, the same along the lines with LV dyssynchrony in bundle branch blocks or RV pacing. And then another cause can be when you have pure mitral annular dilation due to left atrial dilation in chronic A or restrictive cardiomyopathy. And then it's known as atrial functional MR. So it's always possible that these patients have multiple mechanisms of MR. Rarely is it truly isolated to, to one cause. And so you have to kind of keep that in mind when you're, when you're thinking about mitral regurgitation in these patients. Of course, for all cardio nerds, we're always thinking about what the symptoms that we're going to see in this case. And you're thinking about dyspnea on exertion and decreased exercise tolerance for these patients. And the reason I bring this up is because, like Will pointed out, concern for cardioembolic source. And you have to get a little bit suspicious with that mitral valve repair that she had just nine months ago. All right. So, you know, like every good internal medicine doctor says, your real workup should really start with a good history and physical exam, especially in someone presenting with neurologic deficits. So just to go over her objective findings, her vital sign, she's afebrile. Her heart rate is 79. Blood pressure is 130 over 81. She's breathing comfortably on room air. It's adding 95%. She's sitting comfortably in no acute distress. She's alert and appropriately conversant. For her cardiovascular exam, she has a normal rate, as mentioned, with a regular rhythm, normal S1 and S2. I could not appreciate any murmur, rub, or gallop, and she has no JVD. Her lungs are clear. Her abdomen is soft and non-distended. And getting to the money part of this exam, the neurologic exam, she's alert and oriented. She's appropriately conversant, follows commands easily. Testing her musculoskeletal strength, she's 5 out of 5 in proximal and distal muscle groups. She has intact sensation to light touch and as well as proprioception. She has normal reflexes. And then with the complaint of seeing spots, um, she has normal reflexes throughout and negative Babinski and a normal Romberg test. The, her cranial nerve exam, her cranial nerves 2 through 12 are intact, including her extraocular movements and her pupillary reflexes bilaterally. So given her recent mitral valve repair and concern for a possible cardioembolic phenomenon causing these symptoms, we decided to go ahead and admit her to the hospital for expedited workup. So Usman, do you want to share her initial labs at admission? Definitely. When she first got here, her labs actually were fairly unremarkable. Her BMP looked grossly normal. Her CBC, she had a hemoglobin of 10.8, a white blood cell count of 7.3, and her platelets were 294. Her INR looked great as well at 1.15. Her troponin was negative. Her NT pro-BMP was 58, and her lactic acid was 0.9. And so, Will, I think you can agree that when we first had this case in our hands, it was difficult to say the least to triage based on the physical exam and the labs. We really had to use kind of that clinical suspicion that we had from the history. Yeah, I totally agree, Usman. And I'm sure everybody listening to the pod right now is, is clamoring to go ahead and get to the head imaging. You know, the labs really weren't terribly helpful. And just to sort of round out the basic admission workup, of course, you got an ECG that showed normal sinus rhythm with a first degree AV block that she was known to have since her private mitral valve repair. And we also had a chest x-ray, which was relatively unremarkable with a normal cardiac silhouette, a previous left atrial appendage clip, and no pulmonary edema or pleural effusions, no evidence of vocal consolidation. So Usman, maybe you want to go ahead and just share with all the listeners of the pod what our next thoughts were and, and for the next steps of workup. Yeah, well, like you pointed out, the head imaging is going to be crucial in this case. 
And so really thinking about getting either a CT head or MRI of the brain to see what we have going on. And especially since there's such a high suspicion for neurologic involvement, I think any cardio nerds case, it's hard not to look for an echo. And so I'm also thinking of that transthoracic echocardiogram to get a good visualization of the mitral valve. With that being said, since there's such a high concern of cardioembolic source, I would say that I have a little bit low threshold to move on to a TEE if we can't find significant information on that on that transthoracic echo initially. Usman, that's a great breakdown. And you're not only thinking about what tests to go over next, you know, given her presentation, but also what you're going to do with that information. So, Will, what imaging do we have? Yeah. So, as Usman said, at admission, we went ahead and proceeded with an MRI stroke protocol, which interestingly showed tiny recent infarcts in the right frontal and left parietal lobes with no associated intracranial hemorrhage. And there was angiograms included that showed no flow limiting cervical or intracranial arterial stenosis. So, these findings sort of confirmed what we suspected that you know, her symptomatology really matched with transient ischemic attacks or, or even small strokes of a cardioembolic source. Um, so while we tried not to anchor, you know, this sort of confirmed our suspicions. And Usman, do you want to talk about the, the cardiac imaging that we got next? Fortunately, we were able to get that transthoracic echo pretty quickly. And I'm sure that we'll have the images linked on the CardioNerd website. But what we were able to see is that she had good a good squeeze overall within the parasternal long axis. You don't see any pericardial effusion. Her LVS looked grossly normal. And what I was looking for initially on the images was, is there any sign of a PFO or an ASD? And it looks like overall, we're not seeing that in these images. The mitral valve appeared well-seated. And I actually discussed with some of our, our reading echocardiographers the posterior mitral leaflet, it does look a little bit thickened, but that's actually a very common appearance from the annuloplasty from the previous mitral repair surgery. And so not seeing any true vegetation or thrombus or mass that would make us concerned or explain the cardioembolic phenomenon at this point. Yeah. So, so may I ask, you know, we're thinking about cardioembolic source, right? So essentially vegetation or mass or thrombus coming from the heart and going to different parts of the brain, but also paradoxical emboli crossing, you know, maybe a cardiac level shunt from right to left. Did they do a bubble study for this echo? Yeah, Ahmed, you bring up a great point about the bubble study. And that's something that we didn't do on the transthoracic, but we were actually able to evaluate for those types of defects by using Doppler in our TEE, which I'll get to in a second. One of the other things that we were looking for on this transthoracic echo was, is there a vegetation present? And one of the things that we were looking for was potentially a vegetation that would explain infective endocarditis or something of that nature. And we didn't see a gross vegetation present on the echo. But one of the other things that we could be thinking about was, is there any sort of hemodynamic compromise that would be a result of vegetation or infective endocarditis? And so we didn't see a change in the pressure gradients or presence of functional stenosis or any of the signs that we look for on 2D echo for mitral regurgitation. And so not only visually, but also looking at things like the vena contracta, whether there was presence of systolic reversal in the pulmonary veins, which we did not see. And so those things also made us more comfortable or lean towards the valve actually being intact. Thanks so much, Usman and Amit. I think if we push pause here, and think about the illness script of this patient. We have an elderly woman with atrial fibrillation on a pixaban, 
in a history of mitral valve repair presenting with sort of episodic self-resolving neurologic complaints and an MRI concerning for possible cardioembolic phenomena. So uh, while we have normal workup thus far, I think that the next sort of money shot or test that our cardio nerds will be clamoring for is a TEE. You know, just to briefly mention, again, the etiologies of possible cardioembolic phenomena, this this lady could have, you know, left atrial appendage thrombus. She could have a PFO or AST, as we mentioned. She could have an LV thrombus. She could have vegetations on the mitral valve. And we really need to further explore these options or these possibilities with a TEE to roll those things out. So Uthman, could you share what the TEE findings were? So we took her for a TEE, and that's where it's a lot easier to appreciate that there actually was a vegetation involving the mitral valve with bulbal strand-like vegetations that were emanating from the core knot and a larger vegetation at the posterior medial annulus. There wasn't any mitral regurgitation. The left atrial appendage was free of clot. And when we looked at the Doppler, there was no evidence of an ASD or PFO present. Wow. So the TE findings, you know, really confirmed sort of what we were worried about, that her mitral valve could be involved as the etiology for a cardioembolic source. At this point, of course, we decided to get blood cultures. We actually ended up obtaining four total sets of blood cultures. We started her on empiric antibiotics and had our ID consultants weigh in. We took further history for sort of atypical sources of endocarditis, as well as typical sources. And there really weren't any predisposing risk factors for bacteremia. The only thing that she really mentioned was that four months prior, she had had a dental procedure, but had had actually antibiotic prophylaxis provided by her dentist and had not had any infectious symptoms since then. The first two sets of blood cultures did not grow anything, and actually all four sets remained negative. Our ID consultants spoke with the microbiology lab and asked them to keep the culture sets for longer in case of fastidious organisms or positive fungal cultures, but she remained without leukocytosis, without fever, and without constitutional symptoms. So we were a little bit stumped. And I think this is a good time to talk about our differential for culture-negative endocarditis or non-infectious endocarditis. So, you know, in a patient who presents without a clear source for bacteremia or an obvious culture-positive endocarditis with the typical organisms we think of like staph, strep, or enterococcus, you have to think about other less common infections and non-infectious causes. So less common infections include things like fastidious organisms that cultures have to be held onto for longer in order to grow, um, zoonotic organisms, as well as fungal organisms, the most common being candidiasis. For non-infectious causes, you have to think about autoimmune etiologies, malignancy, and thrombotic vegetations on the valve. In our patient's case, she really didn't have any symptoms that would have pointed us towards an autoimmune etiology. Again, no B symptoms and was up to date on her cancer screening. And it's possible that she had a thrombus on her valve as it's difficult to differentiate between, you know, a vegetation and a thrombus. However, again, she had been compliant with her pixaban. So we were a little bit stumped as to what the cause of this vegetation was. Well, I can just ask you what you ended up doing for her clinically. Clinically, you know, we ended up, of course, doing an empiric course of antibiotics, which our ID colleagues recommended. And in collaboration with the CV surgeons, we decided to pursue surgery um, to remove the mitral valve and associated vegetation and, and proceed with a bioprosthetic mitral valve replacement. This was driven by the fact that she had evidence of strokes from this vegetation, which was a, a class one indication to proceed with surgery. Usman, do you mind sharing with the cardio nerds sort of the, our thought process behind whether to pursue surgery or not for this patient? Yeah, I think that this is a great time to bring up the AATS guidelines on when to actually do surgery in these patients. And 
So the standard indications for surgery are if these patients have severe heart failure, severe valve dysfunction, a prosthetic valve infection, invasion beyond the valve leaflets, or recurrent systemic embolization like this patient was having. That's excellent. So for our patient, she did proceed with surgery. She had a bioprosthetic mitral valve replacement and was discharged on empiric antibiotics to cover typical organisms as causes of infectious endocarditis for a six-week course. However, about a week after discharge, her pathology report of the mitral valve returned. And I'm going to let Usman share the final diagnosis based on the pathology report. Yeah, so this is something you're going to have to hold on to your hats, cardio nerds, but our pathologists actually took a look and even our senior hematopathologists agreed that this was actually more consistent with IgG4 pseudotumor. So when our pathologists were actually reviewing the slides, what we were actually able to see was that there was hypocellular fibrous tissue and an inflammatory infiltrate that actually looks similar to multiple myeloma, but the percentage of IgG4 positive staining was extremely high. And that's how we came to a diagnosis of an IgG4-related pseudotumor. Well, that certainly took an unexpected turn. It's very interesting. Would, would you mind maybe teaching us a little bit about IgG4-related disease and, and what we know about the cardiac manifestations? Yeah, I'll be happy to, Amit. This was certainly not on our differential diagnosis, to say the least. And we were actually weren't familiar with the cause of IgG4-related disease and valvulopathy. Just to briefly give a background on IgG4 disease, and I don't pretend to be an expert, IgG4-related disease was initially discovered in 2003. Two years prior to that, in 2001, there was the realization that in autoimmune pancreatitis, there were increased serum levels of IgG4, which raised suspicion that this could be a potential ideology for autoimmune pancreatitis. And then in 2003, as I mentioned, there was the discovery of extra pancreatic manifestations of autoimmune pancreatitis, pointing more towards sort of a syndrome. Now we consider it a fibroinflammatory disease. It's really histopathologically characterized by sort of a triad of lymphoplasmacytic infiltration with IgG4-positive plasma cells, storyform fibrosis, and obliterative phlebitis progressing from inflammation to fibrosis. It usually presents with a subacute presentation that can virtually affect any organ system, or can be isolated to a single organ. And it's been compared to diseases such as sarcoidosis, as it can affect any organ that typically has the same histopathologic appearance. So just to give a few examples, there's several syndromes of IgG4-related disease known to affect glands, so such as the salivary or lacrimal glands, the submandibular glands, extracan organs such as the pancreas, the thyroid. It can affect the orbits. It's also known to affect arteries and can cause a disease known as retroperitoneal fibrosis. And Usman's going to talk briefly about the cardiovascular manifestations of IgG4-related disease. Yeah, I feel like I remember thinking about IgG4 disease when we were studying for step one and step two and thinking about pancreatitis. As far as cardiac manifestations go, like Will mentioned, aortitis is one of the things that we actually do see fairly commonly when, when this diagnosis is made. But what's rare is if there's valvular involvement. And there's very, very few case reports on this. More often than not, from what I was able to find from the literature, it looks like there's about 13 total cases that were reported that involved a valve as an isolated IgG4-related disease, of which two specifically had the mitral valve involvement, like this case. Yeah, so we were really in a little bit of uncharted territory with this, with this lady. And with it being such a rare presentation. So we had her referred to both rheumatology as well as hematology on the outpatient setting. 
once this diagnosis was made. And the rheumatologist recommended further workup to rule out uh, multiple myeloma. So she had actually free light chain ratio, SPEP and UPEP, which were all unremarkable without evidence for a monoclonal protein. And also had a bone marrow biopsy that was negative as well. And the hematologist saw her and, and looked over these findings. And we ended up getting sort of a whole body CT scan to look for other manifestations of IgG4 related disease as she was asymptomatic. And there was no evidence of any other manifestations of her disease. So it's felt to be isolated mitral valve IgG4 related disease. So just to briefly touch on the treatment of IgG4 related disease in the acute treatment phase, you use steroids. And most of these patients are actually rapidly responsive to glucocorticoids. In the long run, you know, if, if patients have extra manifestations, it cannot be completely surgically sized. You want to use steroid sparing agents and sort of the more common steroid sparing agents that are used are methotrexate, mycophenolate, mofetil, azathioprine, and rituximab. But as we both mentioned, this is such a, a rare disease and we're still learning so much about. There's really no standard care for IgG4-related disease. And this case is awesome on so many levels, not only from the cardiac manifestations that we've seen that are so rare, but also just how much of a multidisciplinary case that it truly was. At different points in the case, we had our CV surgery colleagues weighing in, cardiology, general medicine, rheumatology, uh, and infectious disease. And so, and of course, our pathologist that, that guided us to the diagnosis. And so really a collaborative approach to, to help this lady. And I would add just to the fact that it's an awesome case that she has followed up. It's been about a year now since we saw this case and the patient is doing incredibly well. She's had no recurrence of her IG4-related disease that we know of. Her echocardiogram remains normal. She's doing well with her bioprosthetic mitral valve. So although it was a diagnosis sort of almost made by accident, you know, after surgery and the pathology returning, she's doing remarkably well. I agree. Friends, there is so much to love about this case. Most of all, you know, she had everything done right and is doing well on follow-up. But, you know, just in terms of medically, this, this really is a fascinating case. I've come across IgG4-related disease once, and I was in a patient with chronic pancreatitis as well as cirrhosis from IgG4 disease. And, you know, what I've learned about it is that initially it's an inflammatory illness, and like any any cause of injury, the ultimate endpoint is fibrosis, right? And so, really, it, it, the time is sort of of the essence, right? Because the tools we have to address this anti-inflammatory therapy are effective in the inflammatory phase while injury is happening, not so much in the fibrotic phase when injury has happened. I've never really come across cardiac manifestations of this. And in my brief reading before this recording, saw that there are reports of pericardial involvement, coronary involvement, even with a case presenting with a STEMI, fascinating, as well as a valvular involvement. And, you know, just sort of reflecting on where I am now compared to where I was five years ago, I've spent five years subspecializing as an interventional and structural cardiologist. And, you know, I think we all train to get very good at taking care of patients with a typical, you know, cardiovascular illnesses. But the cardiovascular system is, is the, the conduit for the entire body, right? So there's so many cardiac manifestations of systemic illnesses, whether it's rheumatologic, oncologic, infectious, toxic, metabolic, et cetera. And, you know, there are, there are so many of these processes we just aren't as familiar with as maybe we once were during general training. So it really behooves us. And, and this patient, I think that's a lesson that I'm taking from this is to really, again, go back to being a hashtag internist first and, and recalling all of the systemic illnesses that come with cardiac manifestations that come with disease, you know, symptoms of dyspnea and maybe 
at first a you know just micro regurgitation, but you know what's underlying it and and kind of being open to all of these other causes. So it really a fascinating case. And congratulations for taking really extraordinary care for this patient and teaching the world about it. Really awesome job, guys. Thank you so much, Amit. We really appreciated the opportunity to to share this case with you guys. It's a true honor to be on the pod. Yeah, um, it was an awesome experience for us to be able to share what we're doing down at UAB and really talk about a case that kind of gets you thinking in a lot of different ways. Friends, the honor is all ours, and we look forward to having more from UAB. Yeah, um, my mom was dying to know when this podcast is going to be uploaded, so I'll just give her a quick shout out. I hope you enjoy listening, mom. I'm sure she is so proud of you, Will. She always, she always is. She may be a little biased, but shout out to the mom. <laughs> you know, we, what are we if, uh, if it weren't for our mothers? <laughs> That's right. That's a fact. This time, I'd like to introduce our expert, Dr. Neil Miller. Dr. Miller is actually one of our homegrown talents. He did his residency and fellowship here at UAB. He's now an assistant professor and has a significant role in our ECHO curriculum. And I think I speak for the entire fellowship program when I say he's one of our favorite educators. Dr. Miller, take it away. Hi, everyone. This is Neil Miller, and I'm excited to be joining the Cardio Nerds podcast today. I'd like to thank Usman and Will for their excellent discussion of our case of a patient with IgG4-related disease involving the mitral valve. And I want to thank the entire Cardio Nerds team for inviting us. We've all learned so much from the podcast and are thankful to have the chance to contribute. This case provides us with a great opportunity to discuss our framework for evaluating suspected cardioembolic events. Our patient presented with subacute intermittent neurologic defects with a brain MRI demonstrating infarcts in multiple vascular territories, raising concern for a cardiac source of emboli. Echocardiography plays a key role in the evaluation of suspected cardiac sources of embolism, with both transthoracic and transesophageal echocardiography serving important roles. In general, TT is better for evaluating anterior structures, while TE is better for evaluating posterior structures and prosthetic valves. It's important to think about our differential diagnosis when evaluating these patients as it guides what images we choose to acquire, particularly when performing a TEE. The 2016 ASC guideline for the use of echocardiography in evaluation of cardiac source of embolism has a really great table that breaks down the possible causes of embolism by their probability. In terms of clinical conditions associated with high embolic potential, we think about things like intracardiac thrombi, which can be seen in the setting of atrial arrhythmias such as valvular or non-valvular AFib or atrial flutter, where we'd see thrombus in the left atrium or left atrial appendage. Or we can see thrombi in the setting of ischemic disease, either with a recent myocardial infarction or a chronic MI with an LV aneurysm. We can also see thrombus with non-ischemic cardiomyopathies, and we can see them on prosthetic valves and devices. We also want to think about intracardiac vegetations, which includes native valve endocarditis, prosthetic valve endocarditis, or non-valvular endocarditis. We want to look for intracardiac tumors, such as myxoma, fibroelastoma, or other tumors. And then finally, we don't want to forget about the aorta and looking for atheromas, which can lead to thromboembolism or cholesterol crystal emboli. In terms of conditions associated with lower embolic potential, we think about things like the precursors of intracardiac thrombi, such as spontaneous echo contrast, LV aneurysm without clot, or mitral valve prolapse. We also think about intracardiac calcifications, as seen with mitral annular calcification or calcific aortic stenosis. We want to look for valvular abnormalities such as fibrinous stranding or giant lambels excrescences. 
And then finally, we want to evaluate for septal defects and anomalies such as a PFO, atrial septal aneurysm, or ASD. Our patient initially underwent a transthoracic echocardiogram, which demonstrated normal LV and RV function with no obvious vegetations. There was also no significant valvular regurgitation seen. A mitral annuloplasty ring was seen, and the posterior leaflet of the mitral valve was thickened, which is consistent with a previous repair. But otherwise, the mitral valve appeared normal, with some shadowing from the annuloplasty. A transesophageal echocardiogram was then performed, which showed multiple fibrinous vegetations arising from the mitral valve. The largest was a 0.9 by 0.6 centimeters with a smoother or rounded shape. There was no satiated valvular destruction or MR. The tricuspid valve was also thickened, but with no obvious vegetations with moderate TR. This case shows the importance of TE in the setting of suspected cardiac source of emboli when the initial TE is unrevealing. Given these findings, I wanted to emphasize the differential for valvular lesions, which can be associated with embolic events. These include valvular infectious endocarditis, non-infectious endocarditis, which includes varicose endocarditis or Lyman sacs, which is associated with lupus or antiphospholipid syndrome, or morantic endocarditis, which is typically associated with malignancy, myelodysplastic syndromes, or other inflammatory states. These non-infectious endocarditis vegetations tend to be less amorphous and more rounded than infectious endocarditis, and they're not associated with valvular destruction. We may see diffuse thickening of the leaflets or cusps of the valve, however. Other things on our differential include giant Lambels excrescences or valvular strands, like we mentioned previously, papillary fibroelastomas, which, unlike vegetations, are typically seen on the downstream side of the valve and tend to have a more demarcated border with a central stalk and frond-like extensions. We also want to think about mitral annular calcification with mobile elements, and then finally prosthetic valve endocarditis or thrombus. We need to be sure when we're doing these studies that we evaluate any valvular disease thoroughly using multiple imaging planes, color Doppler, and 3D techniques to assess both the lesion itself as well as to evaluate for any surrounding tissue thickening, destruction, or abscess. When we're looking at the surrounding tissue we, and the valve itself, we want to think about the factors that help predict whether this lesion has a higher risk of systolic embolism and stroke. And the things we think about are visible vegetations by TTE or TEE, abscess formation, highly mobile vegetations, large vegetation greater than 10 to 15 millimeters, mitral valve endocarditis, particularly involving the anterior leaflet, and bivalvular vegetations. Ultimately, after a thorough discussion involving multiple teams, including our hematology and rheumatology colleagues, as well as the cardiac surgeons, our patient underwent a mitral valve replacement and the histopathologic evaluation of the resected mitral valve tissue demonstrated massive plasma cell infiltration of the valve with a significant portion showing positive staining for IgG4. As Usman and Will discussed, IgG4-related disease is an immune-mediated fibroinflammatory condition that can involve multiple organs. Cardiovascular involvement is rare, but aortitis leading to aneurysm or dissection can be seen, as well as medium-sized arteritis, pulmonary vascular disease, valvulopathy, pericarditis, or myocardial disease. Diagnosis is based on a combination of clinical, radiologic, and histopathologic findings, including the presence of lymphoplasmacytic infiltrates of IgG4-positive plasma cells on pathologic examination as seen with our patient. She has done very well since her mitral valve replacement. Her re repeat echocardiograms have been normal, and she underwent a CT of her chest, abdomen, and pelvis last year that demonstrated no IgG4-related disease foci. 
We hope you enjoyed this case, and thanks to all the cardio nerds out there for tuning in. Thank <laughs> you.